So welcome to the history of the heavyweight championship of the world, a podcast from Yahoo with me, Steve Bunce. Watch now, down he goes for the count of ten. In this series, I will take a look at one year in the sports history. I will cover all the heavyweight championship fights, the stories, characters, outrageous acts, fairy tales, knockouts, controversies, inventions, and one or two lies. Well, certainly the truth being stretched. In short, all the details that matter. I start in 1960 with men that changed the sport forever. This will be no contest. This will be a total annihilation. Well, let, let him do the talking. He does enough for both of us. I would like to announce my retirement from boxing. Oh, well, I've been up and down a number of times. It's all here. Every fighter and fight that matters. Welcome to 1966. Muhammad Ali was due to defend his World Heavyweight Championship against Ernie Terrell in Chicago on the 29th of March 1966. It was going to be a big fight. Terrell was his number one contender and he was also the holder of the WBA's phony heavyweight crown. Nobody doubted Terrell's credentials. He was big, fearless and awkward. The promoter of the Chicago fight was Bob Arum, who was still promoting the world's finest boxers over 50 years later. However, in February, Ali received some news, some bad news from the military. He was now eligible for the draft. He could get his call up to go to Vietnam at any time. At that time, there was very little anti-Vietnam War sentiment. There was nobody with a powerful voice or pen in the papers, on radio or television, arguing that he should be exempt from military service. Ali had taken and fouled the Army's mental aptitude test in 1964. He had taken it twice, once under the supervision of experts, men drafted in to make sure that Ali was not faking it. He fouled, miserably fouled. I said I'm the greatest, not the smartest, Ali said. However, there was ridicule at the time. He was deemed not smart enough to go to war. In 1966, with American soldiers dying in ever-increasing numbers in Vietnam, there was a change in the requirement. Ali's low score from 1964 was, in 1966, suddenly high enough. He was smart enough in 1966 to die. That's official. It was at this time that he uttered his truly memorable line, Man, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Life was hard for Ali. It used to be easy. Uh, talking and saying I am the greatest campaigning for the title. Now I am here and everybody else is trying to take my title now. And it's no longer fun getting up every morning early to run and training every day. It's getting to be a grind and a job, but it pays off if you're in condition and if you can keep winning. I have so much on my mind as you have been reading. All type little problems, you know, alimony and matrimony and divorce and uh, draft board problems and uh, it didn't really get me down but uh, it's just taking a little time to uh, forget about it. So Clay works out his hate. For him perhaps the punch ball symbolizes all those who seem to conspire against him. Those who demand tax and alimony. The public who sneer at his Muslim faith. The draft board that wants to send him to Vietnam. The sporting authorities in Illinois demanded Ali attend a hearing. They still called him Clay. I should add. The meeting was on February 24th. The local athletic commission wanted an apology. They wanted Ali to have regret for his Viet Cong comment. They were out of luck. Ali never budged, and with each minute of resistance and refusal to change his mind, 
the Terrell fight was drifting further and further away. The hearing adjourned, Ali left, and the same day the fight was cancelled. There was no need for subtlety or subterfuge. Ali was not wanted. He was at that moment suddenly a champion without nation. Aram, a young attorney at the time, tried venues in Louisville, Miami and Pittsburgh. It was no, no, no. A lot of rejection and pain. The press, the aging press, it has to be said, were vicious. The American writers, men that had sat in judgment on 30 years of heavyweight champions, smashed home assault after assault. Red Smith, Milton Gross, Murray Robinson, Jimmy Cannon and the rest of the so-called boss scribes condemned Ali to fiery hell. These men had real power. Robinson said boxing should throw clay out on his inflated head. The others were not so polite. The seasoned writers were, it seems, speaking for a lot of people. It's too easy to forget how little support Ali had in early 1966 for what would become his great cause. We look back now in rose-tinted ignorance at just how isolated and lonely he was in early 1966. In March, his application for conscientious objector status on religious grounds was rejected. The fight was on to get Ali in uniform or have him exiled forever. Forget fighting in the ring. Ali had his license to box. He still wanted to fight. Terrell withdrew from the fight a couple of weeks after the Chicago fight collapsed. It was understandable. Cinemas were saying they would not screen the fight and that meant less money for the boxers. There was talk of a boycott, Arthur Daly of the New York Times. A boycott is urged as the one effective way of showing resentment at a production that thumbs its nose at the public. Aram and his partners found a venue in Toronto, and with just three weeks before the March 29th fight, they also found a challenger in George Chevallo, the man with the iron jaw. Chevallo pushed Ali for 15 rounds, the first person to take him the full championship distance. It was the first lineal heavyweight championship fight to go the distance since 1954. It was hard, gruelling, and the last round was quite amazing. George Whiting, the London Evening Standard boxing writer, wrote, If I never see a livelier heavyweight climax, I can have no possible cause to complain. Chevalier was happy at the end of the 15 rounds. He knows he's been in a fight, and I bet he's going to feel my punches on his body for a long time. Ali, nursing sore ribs, praised Chevallo. He gave me the toughest fight of my life. Chevallo had already lost the fight in 1966, an odd affair against an Argentinian at Olympia in London over 10 rounds, and would fight eight more times that year. It was a different world back then for heavyweight contenders. Just five months earlier, he had lost on points over 15 rounds to Terrell in a fight for the WBA title. Chevallo finally quit the ring in 1978, leaving the sport after 93 fights, having fought some of the greatest heavyweight champions ever. Ali left Toronto with a plan to fight in Europe. He wanted a second fight with Henry Cooper in London. That was easy to arrange. No qualms about the Viet Cong there. He started to promote it the Ali way. Part threat, part comedy, part boast. Well, I'll tell Henry Cooper, if he's watching this show, to come to the fight and be ready to fight. Because I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to London to get you. And after I'm through beating him, I think he'll have to join the Beatles and be a singer. I don't like the way you knocked me down the last time. No man knocks me down and get away with it. So you be ready for it, you hear? Be ready, because I'm coming to get you. And you go home and tell him that. I'll do that. I'm man. not joking. When Ali arrived in London in May for the Cooper fight at Highbury Stadium, he told the British press, 
I have been driven out of my country because of my religious beliefs. My religion is against war, and because of that, I am within my rights to be a conscientious objector. The fight was an event, a big event in a crazy summer for British sport. Nothing unusual about a giant airliner arriving at London Airport, but why all the crowd and all the cameramen? Why, of course, Muhammad Ali, more popularly known as Gaseous Cassius, has just hit town for his heavyweight title defense fight with Britisher Henry Cooper. As you can see, the champ had an unusually modest demeanor, acting every inch a gentleman. No mugging, poetry, not even a sneer. In their first fight, Cooper had landed with a left hook and Ali, then known as Cassius Clay, had gone down heavily. The bell to end the round sounded as Clay regained his feet. In the corner, Angelo Dundee opened a tear on Ali's left glove. Dundee called the referee over to show him the tear. The ruse had gained just a few seconds, extra crucial seconds. In the next round, Cooper was rescued by the referee. That was in 1963. The Ali in the London ring in 1966 was a changed man. The boy was gone. Before the fight at Highbury, there was a call by Whiting for an end to sentiment. Old George was a realist. He knew how hard Cooper's task was. On the night, rounds one to five were close. Most people thought it was two to Ali, two to Cooper and one even. Ali was having to work. In round six, a cut opened on Cooper's left eyebrow and suddenly the fight was running out of time. It was like an oil geezer exploding. The oil was red, said Norman Giller, the legendary publicist and author of over 100 books. Blood sprayed the fighters, the ref, the ring canvas and the ringside seats. It had to be stopped. Ali was at his vicious best, making sure it ended quickly. The ref moved in after 98 seconds of round six to end the bloody night. Cooper's skin had let him down again. Al Henry at first thought it was a clash of heads that caused the cut, but then, after watching a replay, he apologised to Ali. It was a punch. Ali could do damage, great damage, with either fist, and that is something that many people chose to ignore. Ali had grimaced at the blood, at the amount of blood. It had shocked him. Well, I wasn't really too worried, but I was just cautious. Watching his hard left hook, and I'm down, and I feel bad that... The fight had to end the way it did with him uh, bleeding so badly, and it's taken me a while to get over it because it was an awful sight. Did he cut you with one or two that hurt you? Well, one or two, but not really nothing serious. I just hate that the fight ended the way it did with him uh, cut like that. I hate to see blood, and I don't like to see people hurt so bad. And I just weakened me, and I just couldn't stand the punch after I saw him bleeding. I just had to stay off of him and wait for the referee to stop it. But I think the referee should have stopped it. Uh, bef- the minute he was cut because it was that bad. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you Ali's next fight, his fifth defence of the heavyweight championship of the world, was back in London against Blackpool's Brian London at Earl's Court. It was a flop. The fight took place just a week after England won the World Cup. People were emotionally and financially drained. Less than 10,000 paid on the night. It was not good. London had tried to sound confident, offering this priceless little gem when asked if Ali's insults hurt his feelings. He can't insult me, I'm too ignorant. It finished in the third. London was poor, he was heavily criticised for his failure. Nat Fleischer, the editor of The Ring magazine, still the sports bible back then, was brutal. London made $100,000 for doing nothing. Poor Brian looked panic-stricken on the night. The bad sows didn't halt Ali's European tour. 
The roadshow moved to Frankfurt in September and the European champion, Karl Mildenberger, was the man in the opposite corner. It was a surprisingly difficult fight. The German was dropped in rounds 8 and 10 and the fight finished in the 12th with Mildenberger reeling, hurt and vulnerable. Ali had injured his right hand in the fight. There was talk in Germany of a return to America. There was talk about a fight with the once fearsome Cleveland Big Cat Williams. Williams should have had his shot at Floyd Patterson five or six years earlier. He could really punch, and that is part of the reason he never got close to Patterson. Joe Louis, the heavyweight champion from the 30s and 40s, was in Frankfurt, reunited at ringside with Max Smelling, the German former world heavyweight champion and great rival of Louis. At the end of the Mildenberger mauling, he had some words of caution for Ali. Louis always covered himself. That man Williams is way past his best, but brother, he can still take you out with a punch. Cleveland Big Cat Williams was 33 when he climbed through the ropes in front of 35,460 paying punters at the Houston Astrodome. He had fought 73 times. However, he was only considered way past his best because he had been shot by a policeman in 1964. The 357 Magnum had torn through his colon and right kidney and lodged deep in his hip. He had four operations, took 18 months out and then returned to the ring with four quick wins in Houston in 1966. Big Cat had seven gold teeth, was married to a preacher's daughter and still had fragments of the bullet in his body when he agreed to Ali fight for November. He said, I'm going in there to fight, not to play games. It'll be do or die, and I ain't ready to die. He had escaped that bullet already. It was arguably Ali's most cold-hearted display. He destroyed Williams, dropping him three times in the second and once more in the third, before it was stopped after 108 seconds of round three. Ali was in a murderous mood, according to George Whiting, and carried out a highly skilled and savagely controlled execution. Some said Ali was so vicious because he wanted to get Williams out of there quickly and spare him a long beating. This argument collapses the moment you watch the fight. Ali looks intent on hurting Williams and is not on any type of mercy mission. There are many in the Ali business that considered a Williams fight his finest performance. Away from the Ali business, in the other heavyweight business, Big Ernie Terrell, the WBA's heavyweight champion of the world, managed just one defence in 1966. Terrell beat former Ali victim, Doug Jones, over 15 rounds in June. It was not a classic. The crowd in Houston booed. I did what I set out to do, win the fight, said a firmly unrepentant Terrell. It has to be said that at the time of their fight, Jones and Terrell were the leading contenders for Ali's championship. Terrell had been meant to fight him in March of 1966, and in March 1963, Jones had pushed Ali closer than any other fighter. There was a strange exhibition fight in Louisville in November between Ali and Jones over six rounds. Ali dominated. You see, the Jones fight and result at Madison Square Garden back in 1963 still bothered Ali. It remains a mystery fight, overlooked, ignored, denied. It was so obviously a tight, tight fight. By the end of 1966, Joe Frazier was starting to pick off the leading heavyweights. Frazier had started the year 4-0 and and finished the year 13-0. and He beat three very good men in his last three fights of the year in Billy Daniels, the sad Eddie Machin and Argentinian Oscar Bonavina. He was on a fast track. Frazier was getting ready to fill the void if Ali's problems with the army got any worse. 
After beating Machin, the veteran summed up Frazier perfectly. Frazier doesn't have any defence. He don't need it. He stays on top of you the whole time. The Bonavina fight was at Madison Square Garden and Frazier had to climb up from two second round knockdowns. This was a real fight. The first knockdown was not a slip or lucky shot or push or flash knockdown. It was a big knockdown. Joe admitted that. He was hurt, hurt bad from the right hand. He was then bundled over a second time and had to survive over a minute or risk a terrible early defeat. Under New York boxing laws, if a fighter is knocked down three times in a round, the fight is over. Frazier was fighting for his life that night in front of 9,000 fans at the Garden. It was a round that could have so easily ended differently and changed the direction of heavyweight history. It was that perilous for Frazier. Smoking Joe won a split decision over 10 priceless rounds. Bonavina had just beaten Chivalo in the fight before losing to Frazier. Bonavina stayed at or near the top of the heavyweight division for several more years. Machen and Bonavina, doomed fighters. Machen would commit suicide in 1972. And in 1976, Bonavina was shot through the heart by a hired gun working at the Mustang Ranch, one of the legal brothels outside Reno. Big Oscar was a wayward Romeo, a proper handful. At the end of 1966, the plans for Ali and Terrell to fight were in place. The plans to keep Ali fighting legally were not quite so clear. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of ten. 60s was a golden decade for sports writing. And here are some of the men that made it special. The writing geniuses at ringside for some of the greatest fights ever. An extra doff of the hat to the finest boxing journalist of the 60s before we move on. In March 1966, George Whiting, the great writing sage from London's Evening Standard, was in Toronto for local idol George Chevalo's fight against Muhammad Ali, the heavyweight champion of the world. Whiting, like most of the boxing writers, still called Ali Clay. Change was slow. Some papers and broadcasters still called him Clay in 1971. Here's Whiting on the underdog in his preview piece. Chevalo will have no time to rejoice that he was once an unsuccessful car salesman or just two months ago a washed-up fighter in London, losing his reputation to an unregarded Argentinian called Eduardo Corletti and his money to a gambling joint. Tonight, when the acolytes and advisers step out, these things will not matter. Nor will it matter that boxing pundits and politicians are divided in their opinion on whether this is real heavyweight championship or an ersatz argument boosted into false importance to grab a payday. Tonight, the customers are paying for a punch-up. Polemics can come later when they ice-bag the bruises, stitch the slits and mop up the blood. 
It is none of Clay's fault that his latter-day career has been fashioned on a two-time quitter, Sonny Liston, and a faded fighter with an injured back, Floyd Patterson. But all three of those alleged battles were stinkers. Whiting was on a roll, but pulled back from dismissing Ali. His heart, no coward ever gets to be heavyweight champion of the world. Whiting's wise words, observations from a ringside veteran, are crucial to an understanding of just how Ali was viewed before the war fiasco would end the first part of his career the following year. Here's Whiting getting everything in his opening paragraph of his fight report. Cassius Clay, America's reluctant soldier, alias Muhammad Ali of the Black Muslims, will still be the world's number one heavyweight fighting man when his appeal against military call-up is heard in Washington. Any itty-bitty illusions on that pugilistic score were disposed of thoroughly and with masterly conviction when the magnificently muscled clay removed from his imperial path the stalwart but stumbling frame of Canada's George Chevallo here in Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens. Some of us had said that this importunate Canadian should have been selling peanuts in the aisles rather than throwing punches in the ring. We were wrong. It was the fight that the press pack wanted and it led to some great praise for Ali. Here's Whiting again, tripping the light fantastic in a clockwise direction. Clay danced into his evening's glory against Chevallo in the manner of a supercilious Nureyev. And only later was the ballet to become more like an evening in the Barcelona ballroom. Wow. It was just two months later that Ali was back defending his title. This time in London against old foe and future friend Henry Cooper. Here's Whiting in the paper the morning after the fight. You can feel the joy in his words. How do you hit a vanishing black mist, pin down a phantom, corral a well-greased ghost, or catch a will-o'-the-wisp? If there is a heavyweight in the world with convincing answers in his fists, then and then only could come the end of Cassius Clay's spring-heeled supremacy. It seems physically impossible for a man simultaneously to undulate like a cork on the ocean swell, sway like a reed in the wind and move in and out like a cuckoo in a clock. Yet Clay at times conveyed all these impressions smoothly, effortlessly and with venomous poetry of motion. That was lovely, but this is how George finished his report, bringing a quirky personal touch to the readers that adored him, the millions of readers that adored him. Class will tell. At Highbury, it told us that gallant Henry Cooper, age 32, went to world title war late in life against a quick silver magician eight years his junior. Personal note, wrote Whiting, two weeks ago, a cameraman slipped my skull at a clay conference. At Highbury, a policeman tossed me aside and I missed my last train home. We also serve only sit and scribble. That's wonderful. Sit and scribble. And finally, for 1966, here's Whiting on the end of the Brian London and Ali title fight in August, which took place back in London. 
Brian London, by his petrified pancake landing at the flickering fists of Cassius Clay, has removed all traces of robust competition from the heavyweight championship of the world. No heavyweight could have faltered, failed and flopped more resoundingly. Clay played ring-a-ring-a roses and London fell down. Whiting did not care about a boxer's feelings. George was out on his own in the scribbling trade. If you're enjoying this tour through the best of boxing history, you can find more transcripts, archive videos, historical images in the boxing section of the Yahoo UK sports site. That's uk.sports.yahoo.com slash boxing. The history of the heavyweight championship is written and recorded by me, Steve Bunce, produced by Yahoo UK, with editing and sound design by Lolita Laguna. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.